Hello, and welcome to the History of Rome. Appendix 2, Episode 4, The Quagmire. Last time, we talked about Viriatus's long war against the Romans in further Spain, a long war that ended with Viriatus's assassination in 139 and then the surrender of the Lusitanians a year later. Well, remember, along the way, specifically over the winter of 144-143, Viriatus successfully convinced the Aravaki, the Belli, and the Titi to go back into revolt themselves, hopefully starting as many fires in the fiery war as possible so that the Romans would not be able to put them all out. And for quite a while, it looked like this may be the case. Viriatus held out for almost five more years, while the Celtiberian tribes of nearer Spain caused the Romans all kinds of heartburn long after Viriatus died. Now, the frustrating course of these conflicts in Nearer Spain contributed mightily to domestic political fights back in Rome, as the Romans dealt with inadequate leaders hauling overburdened citizens off to fight in a profitless war without end. By the end of this episode, we will be arriving at the critical year of 133 BC, when those domestic confrontations blew up into a full-blown crisis, kickstarting the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic. When the Celtiberian tribes went back into revolt, the Senate dispatched the newly elected consul Quintus Caecilius Metellus Macedonicus to deal with it. And I want to talk just for a second about Macedonicus, because he is a pretty important figure. He actually made a cameo in the prologue of the Storm Before the Storm, because as a praetor in 147 BC, he was stationed in Macedonia when the Macedonians took one last shot at tossing out the Romans. That bid failed because Macedonicus beat them easily, and that earned him the cognomen Macedonicus. After this victory, he had been ready to move south into Greece to take credit for also defeating the rebellious Achaean League, but he was supplanted by the consul Lucius Mummius, who we last saw earning a questionable triumph for his campaign in further Spain. But Macedonicus had already secured his reputation, and he was elected consul for 143, and was then shipped off to nearer Spain to subdue the Celtiberians. When Macedonicus arrived, he moved first against the Aravaki, and apparently had no trouble defeating them. But he failed to find success against two Celtiberian cities in particular. First, Termantia, but second, and far more important, Numantia. And indeed, the resistance of the Numantines would define this phase of fighting in nearer Spain, and it's why we call the whole conflict that is just now getting going the Numantine War. Numantia was protected by two rivers, steep ravines, and dense woods, and it had only one good road coming in and out, which the Numantines pretty successfully barricaded. Though the city was not very large, and there were only about 8,000 dedicated defenders, those defenders were considered the best fighters in the whole province and they would spend the next decade, that's right, decade, running circles around the legions. Macedonicus himself certainly had no luck trying to crack Numantia. He continued his command in nearer Spain in 142, but was unable to do anything more than stop the rebellion from spreading. So, Metellus was called home to celebrate what victories he had achieved, and he rejoined the chaotic milieu of senatorial politics in 141. And just to make a last few connections before we move on, Politics in the 140s and 130s BC was defined by a running feud between Scipio Aemilianus and Appius Claudius Polcare, and most of the senatorial families lined up on one side or the other of this feud, 
Or, if you were the Gracchi, you tried to play both sides, as witnessed by Emilianus' young brother-in-law Tiberius Gracchus marrying the daughter of Appius Claudius Polcare, much to Emilianus' annoyance. But rather than try to play both sides, Macedonicus led the Metelli to forge a third neutral political pole for independent families to gather around, families that saw no advantage to being directly aligned with the Claudii or the Scipione. This decision served the Metelli well a generation later, when the children of Macedonicus and his brother, six sons and three daughters all told, became the dominant family in Rome. As we saw in the storm before the storm, the Metelli were on their way to becoming almost synonymous with the Optimate aristocracy, and the foundations for that supremacy were laid here by Macedonicus shortly after his return from nearer Spain. Anyway, Macedonicus's limited success in 143 and 142 turned out to be the last good news the Romans had for quite a while. He was succeeded by the new consul, consul for 141, Quintus Pompeius, who, I should mention, is not a direct relative of Pompey the Great. Pompeius arrived with an army fully 30,000 strong, plus another 2,000 cavalry, but he proved to be a thoroughly inadequate commander. He attempted to lay a siege to Numantia, but his men were harassed mercilessly by sorties of Numantine defenders. The Roman supply lines were broken, while the Numantines were able to keep themselves supplied almost at will. The whole operation became so demoralizing that Pompeius pulled up stakes and decided to take a shot at Termantia, the other principal city holding out. But he found conditions there no better. So, moving even further down the food chain in search of something resembling a victory, Pompeius landed on the small town of Malia. But even this glorified village managed to hold out thanks to a strong garrison of Numantine warriors who acted as a backbone of the city's defense. But the inhabitants got nervous about opposing such a large force of Romans, and so they turned on this Numantine garrison, killed them all, and surrendered. It was Pompeius's first victory after months of failure, and not a particularly impressive one. Pompeius had a few other minor successes against the towns around Numantia, but he never could crack that main citadel of defiance. After coming out of winter quarters in the spring of 140, Pompeius showed a bit of ambitious initiative. Since the Numantines were able to keep themselves supplied because of their ready access to a river that ran alongside the city, Pompeius ordered his engineers to reroute the course of that river. But like his failed siege the year before, Pompeius could never figure out how to stop the sorties of defenders from popping up out of nowhere, launching lightning strikes at his engineers, and then disappearing like smoke. The river diversion project ground to a halt. Without any real hope of capturing Numantia, Pompeius called it a year and once again retreated to winter quarters. Now, just before the arrival of winter, though, the Roman army in nearer Spain was rendered still weaker. New conscripts arrived to replace soldiers that had fulfilled their six-year service time. And you might remember this incident from Chapter 1 of The Storm Before the Storm, because this is when the new conscripts got their first taste of military camp life, and I use the line from Appian that, quote, the soldiers, being exposed to severe cold without shelter and unaccustomed to the water and climate of the country, fell sick with dysentery and many died. Which, as I said in the book, is not exactly something you can put on a recruitment poster. And back in Rome, the wars in the Iberian Peninsula were becoming deeply unpopular. The upshot is that when Pompeius came out of winter quarters in the spring of 139, he was leading a fairly miserable army. 
they were weakened by disease and hunger and not particularly well-trained. And they were still facing an enemy that had spent the last two years shrugging off healthy and well-trained legionaries. So Pompeius decided the best thing he could do was cut a deal. Maybe if he was lucky, people would celebrate him for ending the conflict rather than excoriating him for doing such a terrible job. He invited the Numantines to come talk and said, Look, if you offer the deditio that we all know is necessary, then I'll make sure the conditions of the peace are extremely lenient for you. The Numantines agreed. But then a few weeks later, Pompeius's consular replacement showed up, the consul Marcus Papilius Linus. And it would appear that when Papilius showed up, it suddenly dawned on Pompeius that oh yeah, duh, I'm going to get roasted for making a lenient treaty from a position of weakness. So he rather boldly denied everything once Popilius arrived in camp. He straight up denied that he had made any deal with the Numantines. Now, the newly arrived Papilius was very confused because the Numantines were claiming that they had a treaty in hand. And then Popilius started asking around in the Roman camp, and all the senior officers, many of them men of senatorial rank, said, Oh yeah, Pompeius made a deal. They all confirmed the details. They all agreed on the same story. But in the face of literally everyone, Roman and Numantine alike, agreeing to this very true thing that had happened, Pompeius accused them of lying and continued to maintain that he had never made any such deal. No doubt highly exasperated, Pompeius referred the whole matter to the Senate, sending both Pompeius and Numantine ambassadors back to the Senate to get it all sorted out. And even if Pompeius's story was not even remotely believable, the Senate did indeed want to flay him alive for the deal, so the end result of their deliberations was sort of accepting his story and telling the Numantines, yeah, we see no deal here. So the war continued. The Numantines were furious. Papilius, meanwhile, having been given instructions to resume the war, fared no better than Pompeius. Back in Rome, Bad news about the ongoing quagmire in nearer Spain was offset by some very good news in further Spain that the great Viriatus had been assassinated. But that did not mean that the citizens of Rome were happy that the war in nearer Spain still continued. And the year 138 marked another major confrontation between tribunes and consuls over the issue of conscription. The consuls for the year were overly harsh in their methods of conscription, trying to draft men who claimed justifiable exemptions and those men appealed to the tribunes. When the consuls persisted, the tribunes placed them under arrest. And the most interesting part of this particular incident was that one of the consuls for the year was Scipio Nasica. The same Scipio Nasica who would, five years later, personally lead the charge up the Capitoline Hill to confront Tiberius Gracchus, a confrontation that led to the murder of Tiberius and 300 of his followers, and it's not out of the question to suppose that Nasica's extreme response to the threat posed by Tiberius's re-election was partly informed by the fact that he had just been tossed in the clink by a few tribunes a couple years earlier. A staunch defender of the rights and preeminence of the senatorial aristocracy, Nasica no doubt felt very abused and justified in taking whatever action was necessary to beat the upstart tribunes back into line. So now we are moving into territory that I covered in chapter one of the storm before the storm, because we come now to the infamous year of 137 BC. 
This was the year that the consul Gaius Hostilius Moncanes was sent to nearer Spain to continue the war, and he was supported by the young quester Tiberius Gracchus. As we talked about in the book, Moncanus was an aristocratic scholar, not a general, and the Numantines had a field day leading him from one trap to another. Moncanus was soon stumbling around blindly, and after another failed skirmish, he heard a rumor that the Numantines were about to be reinforced. So, in the dark, he ordered his army to start looking for a particular spot out in the woods that had been previously used as a campsite by the Romans. But when they arrived at this spot, it was already nearing dawn, and Moncanus took no defensive precautions, probably waiting until light to start constructing a camp. But come the dawn, Moncanus discovered that he and all his men were surrounded by the Numantines and defenseless. An army, perhaps 20,000 strong, plus all their camp followers, was totally at the enemy's mercy. So at this point, it has been six years since the Numantines first went into revolt. The Romans had not come close to defeating them in battle, and the one time a Roman commander had signed a treaty, he had immediately reneged on it. The Numantines had every right to be cold-blooded in their treatment of Moncanus's captured army. But instead, they decided to take this opportunity to try for another truce. They had heard that in the ranks of this Roman army was Tiberius Gracchus, son of the Tiberius Gracchus who had brokered an honest peace 40 years earlier. The name Gracchus was still well known among the Numantines, as it was the name of practically the last Roman they had ever encountered. The Numantine leaders said, we will talk to young Gracchus, and young Gracchus only. So off Tiberius went with the fate of at least 20,000 lives in his hand. He soon emerged and reported that the Numantines would let the Romans go if they were allowed to keep all the Roman baggage as plunder. And this seemed like a no-brainer. Sure, it would be humiliating, but how do you weigh a pile of stuff against 20,000 lives? you don't. So, Moncanus agreed to the deal, and the Numantines let the Romans go. Now, the epilogue to this story, an epilogue that did not make it into the storm before the storm, was that in the baggage that the Romans abandoned was Tiberius's ledgers that he had maintained as quester. Not wanting to lose this official record of his conduct, Tiberius turned around and went back to request the Numantines retrieve the books for him, but if he was hoping to avoid accusations of bribery or mismanagement, the decision to turn around and go back to Numantia only made things worse. Eager to maintain their friendly relationship with Tiberius Gracchus, son of Tiberius Gracchus, the Numantines gave him the books. They treated him to a fine meal and then offered him some lovely parting gifts. When Tiberius returned to Rome, this trip back to Numantia only increased the suspicion that he had been in corrupt cahoots with the Numantines. His general Moncanus, meanwhile, was stripped of his command and ordered to present himself to the Senate to account for his absolutely disgraceful campaign. His consular colleague for the year, a guy named Marcus Aemilius Lepidus Porcina, was sent to replace him. But the arrival of Porcina in nearer Spain simply cemented the year 137 as an infamous year in the long history of Roman consulships. Because Porcina is described as being, quote, of a heavy and ungangly body, as he was very fat with masses of flabby flesh, and was totally unfit for conducting a war. Porcina did not have the self-awareness to know that he was totally unfit for commanding a war, and not wanting to tangle with the Numantines, but still wanting to earn himself a triumph, Porcina spuriously accused a neighboring allied tribe of supplying the Numantines, and he attacked them. 
even though they had almost certainly just been minding their own business. A short while later, a delegation of senators from Rome showed up, and they were shocked at Porcina's aggression. The legions had been getting kicked around by the Numantines, and the Numantines alone for years now, and here Porcina was expanding the war on a whole new front. But Porcina told them, don't worry, I've got it, it's going to be great. But boy did he ever not have it, and boy was it ever not great. In the spring of 136, Porcina launched an assault on their principal city of Palantia, and when he failed to take it by storm, he slipped back into a sedentary siege. And as he sat outside the city, his supply lines were cut off, and he started having trouble feeding his men and horses. It took a while, but his officers finally convinced Porcina that they needed to retreat, this wasn't going to work. But even then, the retreat was bungled. Porcina gave a surprise order in the middle of the night to fall back, an order that was so surprising and so hastily delivered that the legionaries were forced to abandon their sick and wounded, which I can assure you did not go over well with the men. When news of this unforced screw-up got back to Rome, the Senate stripped Porcina of his proconsulship and ordered him back to Rome. So yes, both consuls for 137 BC, Moncanus and Porcina, wound up stripped of their offices. Which, I mean, it's rare enough for any single consul at any time to be stripped of his office. But both in the same year? 137. An ignominious year for Roman consuls. When Porcina returned to Rome in disgrace, his only consolation was that Moncanus was still drawing the lion's share of the Senate's anger. They were still debating what to do with him, and finally decided that to firmly repudiate the truce that Moncanus had signed, that they would deposit him, naked and in chains, at the gates of Numantia. Basically, they would be saying to the Numantines, this is the guy you signed the deal with, and we disown him completely. So that's what they did. Moncanus had already been stripped of his command and his consulship, and now he was additionally stripped of his citizenship. He was taken back to nearer Spain and deposited naked and in chains at the gates of Numantia. But if you read the storm before the storm, you know how the Numantines reacted to this. They rejected the Senate's attempt to blame it all on Moncanus and said that the blood of one man cannot atone for the perfidy of an entire people. And they kind of had a point. After the Moncanus affair, two more years passed, so all of 136 and all of 135, without any resolution to the war against the Numantines. There were still only like 8,000 of them defending the city, and yet somehow they were managing to thumb their noses at the Senate and the people of Rome. I mean, we are now coming up on the 10th anniversary of their revolt, and it had been nothing but humiliation for the Romans. Sensing that at least some of this may have had something to do with the fact that every commander they had sent to nearer Spain since Macedonicus was kind of an idiot, the people of Rome decided they needed a leader they could really trust to finish the job. And as had happened when the siege of Carthage had gotten bogged down a decade earlier, the people of Rome turned to Scipio Emilianus. So, we are now passing into events that I covered in Chapter 2 of The Storm Before the Storm, the assembly passed a law exempting Emilianus from the prohibition on serving multiple consulships, and they elected him consul for 134. Emilianus then took with him a fairly large party of friends and supporters, including young Gaius Gracchus and also young Gaius Marius. But the absence of Emilianus and most of his allies from Rome led his great political rival, Appius Claudius Polcare, to send Tiberius Gracchus, still recovering from the Moncanus affair, to present the Lex Agraria. To the popular assembly. But 
We are here to keep the focus on Hispania. Emilianus arrived in the province and found the legions in absolutely dismal shape. The siege of Numantia was being maintained in name only. Mostly, the Roman camps had descended into demoralized debauchery. Civilians, camp followers, peddlers, women of questionable virtue, they all made themselves at home. No one put any effort into actually patrolling or maintaining a tight siege line. And you get the sense that they considered this whole operation to be a miserable hole that an ill-fated legionary must sit in until he was allowed to return home. There was no chance of victory here. There was only the passage of time. But Emilianus was determined to bring victory, to bring a victory that no one believed possible. And so he cracked the whip as hard and fast as he could. Initially going around in a black cloak of mourning, which was meant to signify the death of Roman courage and honor, he expelled all the camp followers and imposed a strict regimen of calisthenics, forced marches, and rigorous patrols. He drilled the men back into shape and forced them to shake off the sloth that they had succumbed to. And Emilianus was himself disciplined enough that when the Numantines realized they were maybe dealing with a higher class of commander and tried to force him into a battle, Emilianus refused to take the bait. He would not fight until his men were ready. Besides, he wasn't even necessarily here to fight a pitched battle out in the field. He was here to strangle and crush the city of Numantia. So the arrival of Emilianus turned out to be a fatal turn of events for the Numantines. Up until now, they had been able to keep themselves resupplied more or less at will, but the increased vigor of Emilianus's legions left them cut off, isolated, and now slowly starving to death. As Emilianus tightened the noose around Numantia, he made exemplary shows of force against Numantia's neighbors, so that even when a few Numantines managed to slip out of the city and beg for help, they were rejected. No one wanted to be in Emilianus's crosshairs. And over the winter of 134-133, Emilianus called up every name in his massive Rolodex and asked them for further reinforcements. And this included, famously, a company of archers and slingers who would be provided by Emilianus's old friend, King Macipsa of Numidia, an auxiliary force that would be led by Prince Jugurtha. Emilianus also demanded that neighboring tribes provide auxiliary forces or prove themselves to be in cahoots with the Numantines. And by the spring of 133, Emilianus commanded fully 60,000 men. But even still, he did not launch some reckless attack. Instead, he ordered massive siege works to be built to close the noose tighter and tighter. It really was just a matter of time, and the Numantines knew it. The dwindling and starving inhabitants made one attempt to fight their way out, but after they were pretty easily repulsed and driven back into the city, defeat hung in the air. So after this, Envoys came out to meet with Emilianus and ask about terms of surrender. His terms were simple, total and complete surrender. These envoys were like, well, it's probably better than nothing. But when they went back inside to report the terms of surrender, a paranoid panic took hold of the population, a panic that these guys had cut a secret deal to save themselves while selling everybody else out. So in a sort of a craze, they attacked the envoys and killed them all. But the envoys had cut no secret deal, and it did not take long for everyone to return to their senses and recognize that the only way out was unconditional surrender. So those left inside signaled that they would give up to the Romans in the morning. But even then, many refused to fall into Roman hands after all these years of fighting. Instead, 
they spent the night killing themselves in a mass murder-suicide pact that also saw most of them set fire to their property. In the morning, only a handful of emaciated stragglers shuffled out of a burning city, dazed, but for whatever reason, unwilling to kill themselves. But they were still unsure if they would live through this, because Emilianus ordered them surrounded, and the story of Galba's massacre in Lusitania years earlier had circulated widely through the Iberian Peninsula. But Emilianus was not Galba, and he did not massacre the survivors of Numantia, though he did enslave them all and planned to parade them at his inevitable triumph. Then he ordered Numantia raised to the ground. After ten years of fairly remarkable defiance, Numantia was no more. And as I said in the storm before the storm, Numantia was added to the list of conquered cities, along with Carthage and Corinth, that stood as violent proof that the Romans were now fully embracing their role as the permanent masters of the Mediterranean. So, that is not just the end of the Numantine War. It is also the end of this long stage of fiery wars in Hispania that had begun back with the uprisings of 153. The almost 20 years of continuous conflict was unpopular with practically everyone on both sides, and had contributed mightily to new forms of political conflict in Rome. It brought back the self-confident and independent tribunes, it made the Senate and consuls the object of ridicule rather than awe, and the long service abroad played a role in the land and manpower crisis that was now crippling the Roman lower classes. All of which combined to launch the Gracchan Revolution, just as the wars in Hispania were finally drawing to a close. So the conflicts on the Iberian Peninsula were pretty important to the history of Rome, and I'm very gratified to have plugged this gaping hole in the original narrative of the History of Rome podcast. But we are not done quite yet. There is one more episode left in Appendix 2. Because while everything we've talked about so far would have fit into the prologue of The Storm Before the Storm, no series on Roman conflicts in Hispania would be complete unless I included a story that would have fit into the epilogue of The Storm Before the Storm, The Life and Times of Quintus Sertorius. Mm-hmm.